It's good to worship with all of you. Let's continue in worship by taking our Bibles and turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. That's where we'll pick up today. John 20, verse 24. Our series is entitled The Road to Resurrection, and we saw on Easter Sunday a few weeks ago the resurrection. And now we're seeing some more exciting post-resurrection appearances by Jesus in the Gospel of John. We'll see another one of those today. But before we get into God's word too deeply here, let me just start this morning uh, with an illustration, with a poem, if you would. You know, a lot of attention has been paid over the last century to uh, the Second World War. I spent a lot of time with my illustrations. I know talking about the sacrifices and the tragedies that happened in that great war. And I think that's because that war was epic in scope It's easy to be mesmerized by all the the conflict and the historical events that took place during that war, all the players involved in it. And what's lost on us a lot of times is, you know, the sacrifice and the tragedies as well that took place in the First World War. The First World War ended on November 11th, 1918, just over 100 years ago. It was originally called the Great War. And it was great, if by great you mean great in loss of life. 16 million people died in that war, First World War. And most of the fighting, some some of you, most of y'all know this, it was done with this trench warfare thing and, you know, both sides were trying to claim just a few yards at a time. So millions and millions of people died for just a few yards at a time as, you know, it was a... It was a dirty, bloody, terrible conflict. And yet this conflict produced one of the best group of writers, poets that the world has ever known, those who survived the war. C.S. Lewis was a soldier during World War I, as was his brother. J.R.R. Tolkien fought in World War I, as did the Americans, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway. One of the lesser-known writers, poets, was a man named Edward Shillito. He fought in this war, and he, he tried to make sense of the horrors of it. And he wrote the following famous poem. I kind of think of this as his catharsis for what he experienced, for all the horrors that he saw in World War I. And this is his poem called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee. O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. It's kind of a weird statement, a weird way to close out that poem. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Does God have wounds? Does God have scars? What does that mean? What is, what is that author talking about? The title of this message today is A God with Wounds, and last week we saw first evidence of this, Jesus appearing alive to Mary Magdalene, 
He told her to stop crying. Remember, there's no crying in resurrection, Mary. And then he sent, he said, don't cling to me because I got a message for you to deliver to my brothers, to the disciples. And so he sent Mary with this message to the disciples. But the the disciples didn't believe Mary at first. And so Jesus is like, well, I got to show up. I got to fix this. And so he does show up. He shows up in a locked room and he says, first of all, to them, peace be with you in verse 19. And I'm glad he said that because the disciples didn't have peace at that moment. And then in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 20, Jesus showed them his hands and he showed him his side as evidence of his resurrection. And they rejoiced at all of this. What did he show them in his hands? What did he show them in his side? Well, he showed them his wounds. He showed them the visible reminders of the price that he paid for their sin. Can God have wounds? Yes. Yes. Jesus has wounds and he's not ashamed of them. In fact, he's showing them off. Look at this. Look at what I did for you. Believe. And that wasn't the end of this story. That would have been a great end maybe to this book, but John keeps going and I'm glad he did Because at least one of the disciples wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared to the disciples, when Jesus Jesus showed off his scars. And that's where we'll pick up today in verse 24. Let's start with this. Go ahead and write this down in your notes. I want to give you three movements in John 20, 24 through 31. And the first one is this, the, the doubt of a disillusioned skeptic. The doubt of a disillusioned skeptic. Who is that skeptic? Well, John writes in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas is mentioned occasionally in the gospel of John. He was one of the 12 chosen disciples. He's pretty nondescript throughout this book, although he has a few statements that John records. And I, I, I don't think we really have a good sense of who he is just with those few statements that he makes. You know, we refer to Thomas oftentimes as doubting Thomas, right? Y'all heard that before? Have y'all now? You guys with me? Have y'all heard that before? It's kind of unfair to define a person by his worst thing that he ever did, right? Or by one thing that he did. And we're going to see why he's referred to as doubting Thomas in just a second. You know, among the disciples, he was called the twin, Thomas the twin in church history is speculated that maybe he was the twin brother of the apostle Matthew. That's possible, I guess. Not something I'm willing to take a bullet for. So when Thomas the twin shows up, look what happens. I mean, the disciples, you know, they're not always great at what they're doing, but they do the right thing here. They testify in verse 25. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus was showed up. And so When Thomas comes to them, the other disciples told Thomas, verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Remember, Jesus gave him that mission when he showed up. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So I can imagine them with a lot of gusto. They're going out there. All right, we're going to get the first convert. This guy, Thomas, he wasn't there. Let's tell him the truth about what we saw. And so the disciples now fired up about their encounter. He says, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He was here. We saw him. He showed us the wounds. But Thomas reacts like a lot of people react in our day. He's a skeptic. He's disillusioned. I can even see Thomas in that moment saying, I followed that guy, Jesus. Where did that get me? 
It almost got me killed. That's what it got me. I thought he was going to be the king. I thought he was going to rule over the universe. I thought he was going to rule from Jerusalem. You know where he ended up? Dead on a cross, buried. I'm not falling for this again. I don't care how charismatic a leader this guy was. I'm not falling for this again. You say he's alive? Well, verse 25, is what Thomas says. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And in fact, in Greek, that's a really strong negation. Ume is the Greek. It's a double negation, which is confusing in English. We wouldn't translate it that way. But in Greek, it's a way to emphasize your point. It's like saying, I will never ever believe unless I see these things. And I can just see the disciples. All right, okay, Thomas. You know, we're just, we're just trying to tell you what we saw, man. And I can imagine the exasperation that they had. Maybe even Mary Magdalene too. They're trying to convey to this guy, Thomas, what they have seen. And they wanted him to experience the joy that they experienced at knowing Jesus, at seeing Jesus. They can't convince him of the truth that they know to be true. You ever have an experience like that, Harvest Decatur? I have. Wanting so desperately for somebody to see what you see, believe what you believe, knowing that it's true, but for whatever reason, their eyes are blinded to the truth. You ever had an experience like that? Maybe your parents, maybe your children, maybe your neighbors, your coworkers, your boss. Why can't he, why can't she see what I see? Thomas, please, man, you got to believe us. We saw Jesus. He's alive. So here's what happens next. They're at, you know, they can't convince Thomas of the truth. And so here's what Jesus decides to do in his mercy. He decides to do this. And this is good. Harvest Decatur, are you ready for this? Watch this. Verse 26, eight days later. So Thomas has had some time to stew in his cynicism, okay? Eight days altogether. And then the disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, we've heard this before, haven't we? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Does that ever get old, Jesus showing up like that? In his resurrected body, peace be to you. This is great. This is great. Jesus showing off his resurrection body. And, and just notice a few things here. I want to point out some things that John lets us know. The disciples are again inside of locked doors, which leads me to believe that they've gone back to the scaredy cat disciple thing, right? And so now, you know, well, we tried, Jesus. We tried to convince this guy, Thomas, and we tried to be on mission. And he said, no. So we're back, back to fear. And, you know, it really, if you follow just the, the, the progression into the book of Acts, it's really not until Acts 2 that the disciples lick their fear problem. When the Holy Spirit comes in, in full, sure, Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit in John 20, gave them that deposit, but it's not until they're filled with the full power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 that they conquer this fear issue. And notice also what Jesus says, peace be to you. That's the third time he said that. And, I, you know, why would he say that? Why, why would he say it like that? I think for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because I'm sure in a locked room, Jesus shows up. It scared the bejeepers out of them. 
And he's just like, peace, be cool, guys, all right? Don't freak out. But there's also, I mean, that's a practical reason. I think there's a theological side to this. Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. How is peace with them? How do they have peace? Well, we know from other parts of Scripture, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. That's how peace came to these disciples. That's how peace came to us, by the way. Romans 5.1 says similarly, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? How do you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ? It's through faith. It's through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so now Jesus, with the cross in his rearview mirror, he's done the work. He's fulfilled the atonement for sin. He shows up and says, now, peace be with you. I, I, I have peace to offer you. You are in peace as a result of what I've done for you. So what happens next? Jesus shows up out of the blue. <sighs> Thomas, I can only imagine the look on his face. And then Jesus says this directly to Thomas. He's already talked to the other disciples, so he fixes his gaze on Thomas. And he says this, put your finger here, Thomas. And see my hands. Put it, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. By the way, Jesus was listening earlier, wasn't he? He heard what he said. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I see, unless I touch him. And Jesus is like, all right, Thomas, tough guy, here you go. Take a gander at this. Look at this. This is where the the spear went through my side. I was dead. I truly died, but now I'm alive. I'm raised from the dead. And then Jesus says, so matter-of-factly, at the end of verse 7, this is great. What do you want me to do about it, Jesus? Do this. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Those words are actually adjectives in Greek. Jesus says, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Don't be untrusting, but trusting. Some scholars suggest that they should be taken as nouns, these adjectives, substantively. Do not be an unbeliever, but be a a believer, Thomas. And let me say this. I know that Thomas, he gets a bad rap for because, you know, he's doubting Thomas. He had doubts. But watch this. Watch what he does. Can I just say something to you, Harvest Decatur? Let's just step out of the story for a moment. Doubting Thomas, you need to be more like Thomas, okay? You need to be more like this guy. Not the Thomas in verse 25. Not that Thomas, unless I put my hands in his hands, I will never believe. Not that guy. That guy's more wicked and cynical than you even realize. Not believing the testimony of the disciples when they came to him and told him they saw Jesus alive. Don't be like that Thomas. Be like this Thomas in verse 28. And Thomas answered Jesus. My Lord and my God. What what is that? I mean, how do you get from Jesus is alive to my Lord and my God? I mean, that's an incredible statement of faith. This is what we call a Christological confession. That is pure affirmation of Christ's lordship and his deity. 
Bravo, Thomas. Bravo, man. He gets it. And the reason that Thomas's statement is so remarkable is because he grabs, he grasps who Jesus is in a way that nobody really grasps yet. Yeah, I know Peter said earlier, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter did say that. I mean, that's pretty close to what Thomas says here, but Thomas just skips the son of the living God part. He just goes straight to my Lord and my God. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a real problem with this verse. They don't know what to do with it. And if you know anything about the, the JWs, you know that they don't affirm the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. So here's how they try to explain this. They try to say that, you know, Thomas didn't really believe here. Not really. And he didn't call Jesus God. What he did was actually utter a profanity. My Lord, my God. What do y'all think about that? Is, does that work? Kind of like, you know, OMG on Facebook or something. I'm sorry, but that, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work because, you know, D.A. Carson, he, he talks about this, this little Greek word here that makes that whole view impossible. It's the word and. You see that word and? How does that work? My Lord and my God. What do you do with that and? Did Thomas believe here, Harvest Decatur? Truly believe? Yeah, he did. And you know what? He believed more than just Jesus died on the cross for his sins and rose from the dead. He believes better than that. He believes that Jesus is God, that he is truly God. He believes in what we call the deity of Christ. And you might say, well, is it just because he rose from the dead? I mean, Lazarus rose from the dead. Thomas didn't go up to Lazarus and say, my Lord and my God. He knows that this is categorically something totally different now than what we saw with Lazarus, what he saw himself with Lazarus. Jesus has rose from the dead. His, his resurrection is categorically different than anything he's ever seen before. And his victory over death affirms his deity. He is God. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the really amazing thing that Thomas recognizes. God has scars. Jesus is a God with scars. Go ahead and write this down as number two. We saw the doubt of the disillusioned skeptic. Now we see the cry of a converted skeptic. We see the cry of a converted skeptic. My Lord and my God. There's a great painting of this scene by the famous Italian artist Caravaggio. I'll show you this. You can see this on the screen. This painting is entitled The Incredulity of St. Thomas. I love this painting. Have you all ever seen this before? I love, and maybe you can't see it from that distance, but if you get a chance, look at it when you get home. Just Google it. I love the look on Thomas's face in this, in this painting. It's, he's just incredulous <laughs> because it's, it's just too good to be true. He's not disbelieving. He's just like, this is amazing. Can it really be true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? It's too good to be true. That's what I see in his face. Speaking of too good to be true, Tommy Nelson, he, he tells this story about uh, an older Chinese believer who came to his church once. And he was an older man, but when he was a young man, he was actually a student of the great Eric Little in China. Y'all remember Eric Little? Eric Little, the flying Scotsman, 
movie Chariots of Fire was about him. He won a gold medal in the Olympics and then he moved to China as a missionary. Well, Eric Little died in China during the Second World War uh, when Japan had invaded China and put him under house arrest. But before that, he was a missionary and a science teacher in a school. And he had this Chinese student as one of his students in his class. And uh, Little had actually said once this Chinese uh, student had submitted this science project to him. And he had graded this project and he told this Chinese student about his science project that he submitted, it's too good to be true. And in the Chinese world, that, that's confusing. <laughs> he didn't know what that meant. Like, is he saying it's a lie or is he saying that this is not very good? He didn't understand that whole English idiom. And so, and this had gone on for decades. You know, Little had died decades before in China. He died actually during World War II. And so this Chinese man had grown up as a believer, never knowing really what Eric Little meant by it's too good to be true. It's good to be true. So anyways, he wanders into Tommy Nelson's church and he tells him this story. And Tommy Nelson was like, ah, well, let me correct what you're thinking there. Let me fix this decades old problem that you have. Let me explain the nuance of this great phrase. It's too good to be true. And Tommy Nelson had the wonderful privilege of sharing with this older man the nuance of this English idiom. What it means, it's too good to be true. It means it's so fabulous. It's so wonderful. It's what you have done here with the science project. It just, it beggars belief. It's fantastic. Pastor Tommy, as he's telling this story, he's watching the, the countenance of this Chinese man in his congregation, and he watches his countenance change from confusion to relief to joy to celebration. Eric Little hadn't rebuked him. He had actually complimented how good his science project was. It's so good to be true. And, and that's what I see here. Can we go back to that painting? That's what I see here in Thomas's face. As he's looking, it's too good to be true. It's, it's fabulous. It's fantastic. And, and what does he say after that? How does he respond? He explodes in worship. My Lord and my God. That's the only explanation of this. Is that you are God. That you have the victory over death. Who else but God could rise from the dead like this? Who else but God could conquer the grave like this? Isn't this amazing, Harvesticator? Don't we serve a fantastic King Jesus? Victory over the grave? Yeah, we do, we do. And there's more that John wants to relay here to us. More than just Thomas getting saved. It's actually fantastic what Thomas says, I say fantastic too much. I need another adjective. It's tremendous what he's about to do here, okay? Listen up. You know, if John had ended verse 28, uh, at verse 28, I mean, that would be an, an, an awesome account of Jesus showing up before Thomas and triumphing over his doubts. I mean, that's, that's probably what I would be preaching this morning all about. Jesus conquers our doubts. Jesus conquers our doubts. And hallelujah, he does conquer our doubts. And he conquers Thomas's doubts. But there's more here. There's something else going on here that John wants you to know about. And we have to address this. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. There's one more movement in this passage. And it has to do with this. It has to do with an appeal to all undecided skeptics. So we see the skeptic converted. 
Thomas. But then it's almost as, as if John steps out of the story and tells us something that he wants us to hear. All the undecided skeptics in this world and those of us who believe to strengthen our faith. And here's how this works. Here how, here's how this appeal works. Let's start in verse 29. Because this, this is really important. How does Jesus respond to Thomas after Thomas's great statement? My Lord and my God. I mean, that would have been a great time for an attaboy, right? Attaboy, Thomas, you got it. And if you remember, you know, when Peter made that great statement about Christ, calling him the son of the living God, Jesus, I mean, he basically says, bravo, Peter, well done. You got it right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Is that what Jesus does here with Thomas? Bravo, Thomas. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, look at verse 29. So Jesus said to Thomas after this great confession, probably, I mean, I can just imagine like Thomas on his knees, like my Lord and my God, you know, maybe even like Mary Magdalene grasping his feet, not willing to let go of him at this moment. And Jesus, here, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, verse 29, have you believed, have you believed Thomas because you have seen me? That's not a rebuke. I mean, that's good, good. You saw me, you believed. But then he says this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Actually, there is some similarity between what Jesus said to Peter earlier and what Jesus says to Thomas here because Jesus said to Peter, when Peter made that incredible statement, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living, this is even before Jesus died. Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And Jesus uses that famous Greek word for blessed. It's the word makarios, blessed or happy. It's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that same word is used here in John 20, verse 29, in this interchange with Thomas. Jesus says blessed, but he doesn't say blessed are you, Thomas. Who are the blessed in Jesus' statement. Who are the Makarios in Jesus' statement? Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is Jesus saying here? How do we make sense of this statement? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We need to be careful here. We need to be really careful here. Because here, here's our temptation, and, and I hear this a lot, and you know, this is popular interpretation among a lot of people. They might say that you know, Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is he wants us to embrace a blind faith. He, he wants us you know, to just believe stuff, even if we don't have evidence for it. Even if, we don't, even if it doesn't make sense to our mind. What, what Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to turn our brains off. Turns our minds off, turn our minds off, turn our reasoning powers off, and just, you know, make a blind leap of faith. Just believe, you know, it's kind of like, it's like Peter Pan, if you will. We can fly, we can fly, we can fly, if only we believe, right? There's actually a quote from that movie, Peter Pan, and it, and it goes like this. Peter Pan, this is from the movie. All it takes is faith and trust. Oh, and something I forgot, pixie dust. Is that what Christianity is? Is that our faith? Faith, trust, and pixie dust? Is that, is that what Jesus is calling us to here? No, no. Here, let's, let's just think about this for a minute. I want us to do a little thought experiment. 
because we know that John is purposeful with everything that he does in this gospel. Everything he wrote in this gospel. He tells us at the end of this book that he could have filled up many, many more books with what Jesus did. And so what John does in his gospel is selective. It's very selective. He selects these choice moments involving Jesus and other people. Actually, some scholars, I'll just show you how selective he was. Some scholars have concluded that altogether in John's gospel, what we have is about 21 days of Jesus's life. That's it, 21 days of this man who lived 33 years and had a three-year-long ministry. Not consecutive days, obviously, but different moments in Jesus's life. 21 days, that's all we have. And, and, you know, this is not a biography of Jesus, not like you or I would write. John has a purpose with everything he's doing, and his ultimate purpose is to lead us to faith, to believe in the name of Jesus like he believes. So the question we've got to ask is why, you know, John has all these options to choose from. He could have filled up tons of books with stuff about what happened with Jesus. Why this anecdote about Thomas? Why is this here? Why did he sift this one out and relate it to us? What's he hoping to teach us through this? Here's why John did it. It's because John anticipates with his readers that the same objection will be made that Thomas voiced in this passage. I'm not going to believe unless I see him with my eyes, unless I touch him with my hands. He anticipates that. And so he recounts this story for us. Is it Jesus' plan to show up in the flesh to every single person throughout the world and to tell them, here I am, peace be with you. Touch me, I died on the cross for your sins, believe. Is that Jesus' plan? Here, listen to me. It's not. If it was Jesus' plan, Why would he send out people to go into all the world and to preach the gospel? Why would he even give us the Great Commission? We talked about this last week. Jesus sent us out to be testimonies to what God has done. So, back to Jesus' statement in verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think the clarifier reason for this is found in the verses that follow. Actually, there's no way to really understand verse 29 without verses 30 and 31. The context is so important here for interpretation. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not those who see and believe who are blessed. It's those who hear and believe who are blessed. It's those who read and believe who are blessed. It's those who see with the eyes of their heart and believe, not the eyes in their sockets. It's not blind faith. Blessed are those who hear and believe. Do y'all get it, Harvest Decatur? Everybody with me? Let me clarify a little bit more here. And John, John wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be blessed. That's why he wrote this down for us. And here's how I know he wants you to be blessed. He said in verse 30, we know these verses. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Remember, I said last week that John was selective. Each anecdote was chosen in the life of Jesus for a purpose. He chose them with an overarching purpose. And here's the purpose. What is it? Verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you have life in his name, Harvest Decatur? Do you have life? If you do, if you are a believer, I'll just tell you right now, it's not because you touched Jesus' hands or you touched his side or you saw him with your eyes. Why do you believe? Why do you believe? It's because God has recorded his truth in this word and you have taken it as truth and you have believed. That's why John wrote it down. That's why he told us about this thing, these things. Does that make God unjust that he did it this way? That he didn't go around to all the world and say, peace be with you, here I am, believe. Peace be with you, here I am, believe. No, it doesn't make him unjust. In his generosity and his goodness, he inspired the, the apostle John and the other scripture writers to record in here the truth about Jesus so that we might hear and believe and be blessed. Here's how the hymn writer George Keith said it circa 1787. I know some of you will recognize this. He says, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he hath said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? I remember that hymn as a kid and I was trying to sing it this week and I couldn't get the melody right. I was singing it and Alistair's been doing this school online and they've been singing this song. He's like, Dad, it doesn't go like this. It goes like this, you know. There's some days that I really don't like living with two musicians in my household. It's, that was one of those moments. What did this hymn writer say? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Here's where your faith is put. Here it is. Here's the foundation. You know, every year around Easter time, you get these reports that come out in the, the media. And usually what they do is they, they interview supposed Christian leaders around the world and ask them these hypothetical questions about Jesus' resurrection and then write about it. And I heard recently from this liberal bishop that was interviewed by a media source. I can't remember where he was from, Australia or something. And they asked this bishop, they said, what would you do if there was absolute proof found in Israel today that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? What if, I mean, what if the, the bones were raised up, you know, it was proved beyond doubt that the disciples had lied about all of this, that it wasn't true, that Jesus wasn't truly resurrected from the dead. How would you respond to that? And this liberal Christian leader, um, here's what he said. He said, it wouldn't change a thing about my faith because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead in my heart. Can I just tell you what that is, Harvest Decatur? That's stupid. That is stupid. Why would God have us believe a lie about Jesus? And by the way, I'm not the only way that feels that way. John, the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, your faith is pointless, and we as Christians should be pitied. Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead in my heart. He rose from the dead in the flesh. It happened. 
Look, I want to be clear about this. I want to be really clear about this. I know I've been kind of wandered around a little bit here, so lock in with me. God never, ever asks you to believe a lie. That's not faith. I know that's how the world defines, you know, it's just some belief, just some kind of thing that you... God asks you to believe the truth. Always. Faith is linked to the truth. And it's linked to the truth of God's word. That is biblical faith. By the way, it's always been that way. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? He believed God's word. And that's what God is asking us to do here. To believe his word, to believe the testimony. That's why Thomas is in the Bible. The reality is you won't see Jesus face to face. You won't see the scars in his hands. You won't have the experiences like Mary Magdalene did or the other disciples or even Thomas. You won't. Not on this side of eternity. But you know what? Be of good cheer, Christian. Because Jesus said, blessed are you. You're even more blessed than Thomas is. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believed. You believe because the faith that you have is based upon God's word. Blessed are you who have seen and, and still have not seen and yet believe. And even now, Jesus is saying this this morning. I want you all to hear me say this. He's saying to you, just like he did to Thomas 2,000 years ago, do not disbelieve but believe. Do not disbelieve but believe. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Is everybody with me? God has never asked you to believe a lie. He wants you to believe the truth of his word. And the truth that's recorded here is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Believe it. Believe it. Let me close with this. Let me close by going back to that poem, Jesus of the Scars, by Edward Shillito. I want to use this poem to prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to take up these elements in just a few moments and remember what Christ did for us on the cross. But before we do that, let's revisit that last stanza of the poem. Here's what Shilato writes. He says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. What does he mean, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak? Well, here's how one blogger explains this. I like the way that she explains this. This is Victoria Emily Jones. She says, in contrast to the gods of the other religions, the Christian God, Yahweh in Christ, bled and died for his people and suffers still, bearing all of humanity's hurts until the day when hurts will be no more. But even then, his scars will remain as a badge of honor, a reminder of his sacrifice on our behalf. Does God have scars? Does God have wounds? And what does that mean, too? You know, they rode these other gods, but thou didst stumble to a throne. How did Jesus stumble to a throne? Well, the early church fathers, they saw the cross of Jesus Christ as a kind of enthronement. 
And you might, you might wonder, like, why do we have this big cross out in front of our church? Why do we celebrate the cross with what we do? Why do you, maybe some of you wear a cross as, why would you do that? It's kind of weird, isn't it? The, this instrument of death, of execution, why would you do that? Well, that's, that's where the payment for our sin was made. That was, symbolically speaking, Jesus' throne, where he received the great glory of what he did for us. And he, like the other gods of this world, and I can even see in World War I, this author looking at all these generals showing up and, and with all their pomp and circumstance, trying to display their glory before everybody. Jesus wasn't like that. Instead, he stumbled. He was tortured to death on a throne, on the cross. Why? So that those wounds, so that that suffering, so that that death might pay for our sin. And now we have somebody who's able to bear with our weaknesses and sympathize with us, tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. You got wounds, you got hurts. So does God. So does Jesus. And he saved us by those wounds. And this is our response to this. It's the same response that Thomas had. My Lord and my God, Jesus Christ, you are my God. Let's just bow our heads before the Lord right now.